Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss right ventricular failure. Right ventricular failure is a frequent occurrence in critically ill patients, and in many circumstances, it is underdiagnosed and mismanaged. Our guest is Dr. Ryan Tedford, a practicing cardiologist with a focus on heart failure. Dr. Tedford is the Dr. Peter C. Gay's endowed chair in heart failure, a professor of medicine and cardiology. He's the section chief for heart failure, medical director of cardiac transplantation, and director of the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Fellowship Training Program at the Medical University of South Carolina. He's a recognized expert in the topic. It is a true honor and pleasure to have him today as our guest. Ryan, welcome to Critical Matters. Sergio, thank you very much for having me. Look forward to the discussion today. Well, it seems that the, the left ventricle gets a lot of attention all the time, and somehow the right ventricle is a little bit forgotten in the mind of many clinicians. So uh, I thought this would be a great topic for our audience to, to hear from you and maybe explore right ventricular failure within the context of acute illness in, in the ICU. For sure. Yeah, the, the right ventricle has uh, only recently gotten its due, so I look forward to any time I can talk about my favorite ventricle. Uh, awesome. So maybe we can start with a little bit of a historical context. Just uh, tell us, I mean, how initially a, a lot of people really disregarded the right ventricle's importance, and then why do you think today we should be paying attention to the right ventricle as critical care clinicians? Sure. Well, you know, some of this goes back to early animal studies. Um, one that I talk about in our recent review in the New England Journal was done by Isaac Starr, where they essentially ablated uh, the right ventricle. And when they saw that there was not much change in pressures or cardiac output, you know, they really concluded that the right ventricle was less than less important. And then on, on top of that, we have um, the development of Fontans, which have been life-saving uh, therapies. And, uh, you know, it showed that, that people could live without a right ventricle. Yet, you know, what was missing there is that these folks did not have normal functional capacity. And those uh, individuals do okay until the other ventricle starts to fail, and then they get into real trouble. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think because of observations like that, the, the right ventricle has been less well studied. Uh, but now we know that it is a critical uh, determinant of outcome in many different um, uh, diseases, not just pulmonary arterial hypertension, but certainly left heart failure uh, and even um, uh, COVID-19. So uh, it, it really now is, is getting uh, its its due. And in terms of a, a of acute critical illness, you, you did mention COVID-19. You, me, you mentioned, obviously, left heart failure, which is the most common cause of right ventricular failure. But there's also, I mean, a growing recognition that um, isolated or predominant um, right heart failure in different situations also has significant clinical implications. Why do you think it's so important for us as critical care clinicians to pay more attention to this today? Well, I, th I think it's for the reason that you mentioned, that we know it's a, a major, if not the most, um, certainly a major determinative outcome in, in a bunch of different conditions. You know, we, we can think about it uh, as both acute and chronic, uh, and there's a differential diagnosis uh, for both of those. 
certainly the one that, that we think about with acute right heart failure, the most common would be a pulmonary embolism. And we know the right heart um, doesn't tolerate acute increases in afterload well uh, compared to its uh, counterpart across the septum, which uh, can tolerate increases in load much better. And there's a number of different reasons for that. Um, but uh, those individuals uh, really struggle and, and require, you know, uh, certainly anticoagulation and sometimes uh, additional therapies to alleviate that clot burden uh, so that the right ventricle doesn't fail. But even in the chronic setting, the, the RV remains afterload sensitive. And so there's a number of different ways we can uh, think about that and target that when we're thinking about treating the right heart. And I guess the other category that we'll maybe talk a little bit about also is acute and chronic, right? I mean, we see this in a lot of chronic diseases in the ICU where small uh, changes can really decompensate patients with chronic problems, but understanding how to manage them in particular with the right ventricular failure is going to be important for critical care physicians. That, that's exactly right. You know, on, on, a, on a chronic basis, the RV is able to compensate uh, up until up a point where it lacks reserve. And at that point, uh, any further increases in afterload or decreases in contractility uh, really push you over the edge. Uh, and those patients obviously become very critically, critically ill. And so it's, you know, how do we recognize that? How do we prevent that, uh, that tipping point uh, where we're going to manage those patients? Excellent. Well, let's dive into the topic. And um, I was mentioning before we started recording how much I appreciate it your recent uh, review article in the New England Journal of Medicine and the fact that you uh, added a lot of pathophysiology in the appendix. And it just reminded me of my medical student days reading uh, Guyton and really enjoying learning about uh, how the heart works and, and, and the hemodynamic uh, factors that, uh, that determine function. So why don't we start with pathophysiology, Ryan, and maybe we could start with the hemodynamic determinants of right ventricular function. Sure. You know, when we were when we were writing this uh, review, we initially got a little bit of pushback as we started talking about physiology, um, and you know they wanted it to be a very clinically uh, approachable review. But the argument, of course, is that if you don't understand the physiology, uh, you you can't treat these patients because it's all about the physiology. Uh, and so we actually use that framework throughout the review when it comes to diagnosis as well as treatment. Uh, and so really understand. Understanding the physiology is key. And, you know, honestly, just like the left ventricle, the right ventricle has four main determinants of function. Uh, preload, uh, or essentially how much um, uh, the ventricle is, is stretched. Um, contractility, or, or inotropy. Um, uh, afterload, the, the pressure or the impedance in, uh, against the right ventricle must um, uh, overcome to eject. And then uh, something called lucitropy, or active relaxation. And it's really those four determinants um, uh, of function uh, that dictate how the right ventricle is going to do. You can either have too much or too little preload. Uh, you certainly can have a decrease in contractility. You can have too much afterload uh, and then impaired uh, lucitropy. All of those will uh, cause a worsening RV function. And, and it's interesting, I mean, that obviously I think most of us have always thought at the bedside in terms of preload, afterload, and contractility, but lucitropy has some, is something is a function that really over more recent, let's say, years in research have really uh, become more interesting uh, for for clinicians in general, both on the left and the right. And just as a as an anecdote, um, 
back in the day when I was doing research, uh, Ryan, I had an animal model of uh, septic shock, and we did a serial echocardiography on septic mice. And uh, what was super interesting is that the, the main determinant of uh, survival was diastolic function, which I guess is a mm. correlate of lucitropy. So the animals that could sure. dilate their, their ventricles with fluid load were the ones who were survivors. Yeah, that, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense, and, and you're right. Um, you know, we talk about contractility and afterload a lot in RVPA coupling, but there's increasing uh, work and data from the, group, the groups um, uh, in the Netherlands as well as Germany that, that suggest uh, RV diastolic function may be, uh, you know, just as important, if not more important. Now, a lot of times, you know, all of these factors coexist, right? You, if you have RV contractile deficits, you're likely going to have diastolic dysfunction as well. But there are certainly um, cases where you may have diastolic dysfunction and contractility may be normal. Uh, for example, in early heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, uh, and both on the LV and RV side, um, there is some data to support that. So, you know, I think it's something that we're learning a lot more about. We don't have great ways to target that yet, um, but maybe we will in the future. And, and I agree with you 100%, especially as intensivist at the bedside. I think that having very a firm understanding of basic physiology is going to be critical as we implement, obviously, evidence-based therapies, but in terms of trying to figure out how our patient, our individual patient is responding. And, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, I, I, don't, I don't see how we could talk about therapy later if we don't focus on preload, afterload, and contractility. I agree with you. Now, before we go into more of the clinical aspect, I do think that, uh, at least for me, was a lot of interest, and obviously you are deep into this topic, so this is what you live every day, but you did talk a little bit more about cellular and molecular mechanisms, and I found that all very interesting because not something that I have read recently, and without nerding out too much, could you just give us maybe an overview of some of those mechanisms, and, and I believe those are going to be more important for chronic um, um, right ventricular failure, correct? That's right. You know, and, and I have to, um, one, uh, give a shout out to my colleague, Evan Britton at Vanderbilt, who, you know, is really a leading expert in this and, and was um, uh, really this section and the review was, was his focus and he was very helpful. But it is, you know, very interesting to, to, to look at the different uh, cellular um, and molecular mechanisms that may contribute to, to right heart failure. You know, we think about um, hypertrophy that occurs, fibrosis that occurs, um, uh, ischemia that occurs due to a number of different factors. Uh, when the right heart fails, the neurohormonal act, uh, system gets activated. We see inflammation, and there's shifts in the metabolic substrate from um, using fatty, ox uh, fatty acid oxidization, uh, a switchover to using uh, glucose. Um, so a lot of different mechanisms uh, play a role. I think you know some of the other um, kind of fascinating, uh, more recent findings uh, is um, uh, insulin resistance uh, that, that may occur in these individuals and also the impacts of obesity. Um, one of my former colleagues, Kavita Sharma, has shown us that in obese HEPAP patients, for example, they have intrinsic right ventricular dysfunction compared uh, to their non-obese uh, counterparts. So if you develop pulmonary hypertension, uh, you're just not going to be able to tolerate that as well if you have a contractile deficit. You know, so these are all, all very important factors um, when we think about the different mechanisms that, that are contributing uh, to right heart failure. Um, uh, many of these patients will have a sleep disordered breathing, and that can cause uh, hypoxia. 
uh, and also, um, you know, change the, the molecular phenotype that may be happening uh, in the right ventricle. Excellent. And, and as we mentioned, these are probably very critical to understand in terms of chronic development, but also I would imagine that in terms of long-term therapy, these are all going to be targets of research of new maybe drugs in the future and of current drugs. So I, I feel that it's something that worthwhile discussing, even if briefly. Let's yeah, we you know we certainly right now a major unmet need is a drug that targets um, the, the RV myocardial function, you know, both systolic and uh, diastolic. Most of our therapies are aimed at, at uh, amelioration of afterload, uh, but you know that's only part of the the story as we've talked about. So, uh, the more we understand the pathophysiology here, the more we understand these molecular mechanisms the more we should be able to target um, the myocardium itself and, and make advances forward. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit about diagnosis and evaluation in terms of, uh, a, like, you, like we mentioned, there's chronic uh, right heart failure, which is something that you encounter in, in the outpatient setting. But considering our audience, I would like to focus on when should we be thinking and how should we work up a suspected right ventricular failure in the in acute situations or acute on chronic situations in the ICU. Well, you know, it starts, of course, with a thorough history and physical exam. Um, uh, nothing really replaces that. You know, in history, uh, in the ICU, uh, it's going to be a little bit more apparent. But you know, we're looking uh, for signs that they've had uh, interexertional dyspnea for a period of time. They have abdominal fullness. Uh, they may be tachycardic, they may have early satiety. You know, a lot of those uh, type of symptoms can uh, give you a hint that the, the right ventricle may be impaired. Uh, your physical exam, though, is going to be very helpful, of course. With the, the best physical exam tool that we have is to look at the jugular venous pressure. And we can do that either just by visualization you know, or with a direct measurement if we're in the ICU. Um, listening to the heart for a loud second heart sound may suggest pulmonary hypertension you know, having a palpable and pulsatile liver um, would suggest, again, right ventricular dysfunction or tricuspid regurgitation. And of course, things like ascites and lower extremity edema. All of those uh, can be very helpful. Uh, our basic diagnostic tools then looking at uh, electrocardiograms. Uh, and then, you know, what's really the, the best screen tool we have, uh, echocardiography. And that's really gonna uh, help um, describe to us, you know, how, how sick the right ventricle is and, and if it's involved. Before we, we talk a little bit more about echocardiography in, in the setting of the ICU, um, what are some biomarkers or EKG findings that we should be attentive to when we're evaluating these patients? Well, the EKG, um, if the right ventricle is, is very dilated, uh, well, first and foremost, probably the most sensitive is just uh, sinus tachycardia, you know. Um, there was a, an old, a colleague of mine who used to say, uh, sinus tachycardia scares me the most of any arrhythmias because I don't know what to do with it. And uh, it's usually a, a sign of something ominous. And so sinus tachycardia to begin with, uh, we certainly can see uh, right axis deviation, right atrial dilatation, or evidence of, of right ventricular hypertrophy. And all of those may suggest uh, that the right ventricle uh, is in trouble. Now, uh, completely perhaps separate uh, would be, um, you know, a right-sided myocardial infarction, and there are, you know, characteristic EKG findings of that. But if we're talking more of just identifying in the sick shock patient uh, is the right ventricle play, um, uh, those signs uh, that I mentioned uh, can be helpful. 
know, biomarkers, um, we have, you know, brain antritic peptide is a sensitive biomarker. It doesn't really differentiate between left and right-sided uh, heart failure, uh, but it's also not specific because uh, other things uh, can contribute either to levels that are higher, for example, in sepsis, uh, as you probably know, Sergio, uh, can be elevated, but also other factors like obesity um, uh, can actually cause uh, relative um, lower uh, BNP for the degree of, of, of heart dysfunction that you have. Absolutely. And, and I think that also, uh, obviously, like troponin could be helpful in the right context. Now, you, it's also nonspecific for the right ventricle. But if you're suspecting PE, any of these biomarkers, if elevated, should make you think that there might be RV dysfunction. Yeah. So troponin, of course, is not specific for a, a acute coronary syndrome. And you're exactly right in pulmonary embolism. One of my former colleagues, Tom Metkus at Johns Hopkins, has done a lot of work in kind of RV protective strategies in, um, in ARDS. And in fact, it has shown that, of course, the higher the troponin, um, uh, the worse your outcomes. And so a lot of that, uh, we were actually related back to the, to the right ventricle and how stressed it was. So uh, certainly uh, a troponin um, can be uh, helpful in terms of prognosis. And uh, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Ryan, before we, we dive into echocardiography is I know that uh, in your review, you talk a lot about MRI a lot, and it's kind of like the seems that there's a lot of amazing things you can measure with cardiac MRI these days, but I've never seen it used in the ICU, and that I, I presume is for, for logistical reasons. But is that something that you think might be coming to an ICU soon? You know, the MRIs uh, still take a lot of time, and, and they're excellent tools. Um, we, can, we can certainly learn a lot from, from an MRI, uh, but I think typically, you know, folks are uh, they're critical in the ICU. They just don't tolerate, uh, you know, the MRI, uh, don't tolerate being in the MRI suite that long for various reasons. We certainly do it, you know, thinking about in our left heart failure world uh, for patients that, that are sick that we think may have, you know, active cardiac sarcoid, for example, or myocarditis will work to try to get an MRI. You can obviously do it when the patient's intubated, but they need to be somewhat stable. Um, but, you know, some of the things we're finding on MRI is a little bit more subtle, and I, I think it's more useful in more of the outpatient evaluation, um, with a few exceptions, like I mentioned. Um, but, you know, really for the inpatient, we're going to have our invasive hemodynamics, and we're going to have our echocardiography. We really didn't talk about the gold standard, which, of course, is pressure volume assessment. And, you know, a lot of my research has been in, in PV loops. These are really uh, elegant um, type of uh, measurements that can be used to assess the right ventricle, and they can detect abnormalities that you wouldn't detect by MRI and echo. For example, we showed that in patients with systemic sclerosis, uh, these individuals have RV dysfunction um, uh, out of proportion to their afterload uh, increases, and this was very different from idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. We've also used these techniques to show that, that women tend to have um, better contractile function uh, than men. Um, but, you know, these are, again, a little bit more uh, in a research setting. Uh, there are surrogates that are being developed, kind of less invasive approaches, um, uh, single-beat approaches that might be used clinically down the road once those are a bit more standardized. Uh, but, you know, the question is how do we relate that gold standard then to uh, our more clinically approachable metrics that we have with either echo MRI or invasive heme dynamics? And, you know, I think the other... Um, in the ICU, typically, it's not subtle, right? So the RV is really blown out. So I think some of these other metrics are better for detecting kind of subacute or, or um, um, 
or kind of hidden right ventricular failure rather than if you have a huge dilated right ventricle. The, the diagnosis is not in question at that point. Awesome. From an echo perspective, what are things that people should be paying attention to or what are the things that you're looking at in, a, in an acute setting? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I think it is your overall gestalt when you look at the echo, right? So just the RV size and the overall squeeze. Um, you know, we do have some limitations when it comes to imaging the, the right ventricle. Um, you know, sometimes, especially if a patient's acutely ill on a ventilator, it may be difficult to actually visualize. Uh, there's a really nice uh, review out by uh, Rebecca Hahn uh, in Jack Journals where she kind of goes through imaging the right ventricle via echo. Um, but just looking at the RV size, right? If the RV size is bigger than the LV, um, you, you know that you have a right ventricle that, that's in, tru that's, uh, in trouble. Um, the TAPSI or the tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion um, is a good uh, measure of right ventricular function. We know that the right ventricle, about 80% of its function is, uh, is uh, contractile, contraction occurs in a longitudinal motion. And so seeing how that tricuspid um, uh, annulus moves towards the apex gives us a good sense of, of right ventricular function. We can also look at the tissue uh, Doppler velocity at the lateral tricuspid annulus, it's called S prime. It can be helpful. And we can't really get an RV ejection fraction um, uh, when, when we use echo, at least 2D echo. So we look at the fractional area change, but all of those can be helpful. The metric that, that what I think is, uh, well, maybe the two metrics that I think are, are the best, um, one is, is the ratio of TAPSI to the pulmonary artery systolic pressure uh, that ratio, um, and of course the pulmonary artery systolic pressure being estimated, um, but that ratio is at least, uh, it's been shown to modestly correlate um, with the gold standard that we talked about earlier, that RVPA coupling from conductance catheters uh, and pressure volume analysis. Um, it's not a perfect surrogate. Certainly TAPSI has some low dependence, and so to some extent you're kind of maybe overcorrecting for afterload, but you know this uh, metric has been shown to be prognostic in left heart disease, uh, and pulmonary hypertension, and we actually have some cut points now that can be used clinically. Uh, so I think that, that that's a pretty good metric. We have a paper out um, in JACE just a couple days ago, and that's one of the factors that, that we um, use in a multimodality um, a risk assessment for acute pulmonary embolism. The other is, you know, RV uh, strain. And, you know, I do want people to realize that, that strain is actually not a measure of contractility. In fact, it's probably better correlated to afterload than contractility. And nonetheless, it's still quite prognostic and it's probably also, um, well, it is also uh, more closely associated with RVPA coupling than some of our other metrics. And so I think that, you know, in subtle, more subtle cases, strain can be helpful. But as we go back to the, you know, the ICU setting, usually it's not subtle, right? It's the ventricular size. It's the flattening of the ventricular septum that can suggest either volume or pressure overload. We can uh, quantify this by looking at the eccentricity, the eccentricity uh, index, uh, which is uh, essentially the ratio of the anterior-posterior dimension uh, to the septolateral dimension. And if the value is more than one, this you know, suggests ventricular overload. And these are patients that, you know, uh, when we see this, this is obviously something we want to target when we're trying to uh, improve these patients. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing I wanted to, to, to ask you about, obviously, the, the echo, a well-done echocardiogram can give you, like you said, a lot of measurements and new measurements being developed, so it's worth it. But um, 
like you said, in the, in, the, in the acute setting, a fast focus exam or even a CT scan can show you that the RV is dilated. That's a starting point, right? And in the right clinical context, you can start making the story together. But the other, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Brian, is the um, right heart catheterization, right? Which in your world is going to the cath lab and doing all these fancy measurements. But in the critical care world, it used to be our bread and butter, <laughs> a PAC catheter, which now is almost gone. However, this might be a population where perhaps we should reconsider that. You know, um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, right, there were a number of studies in the non-cardiology literature, uh, critical care literature that suggested therapy guided by pulmonary artery catheters was not beneficial. And in fact, in some studies, perhaps harmful. Um, you know, I think on the cardiology side, it's been more neutral, although arguably the design of those studies weren't um, perhaps ideal. You know, for, for most patients, though, right, um, PA catheter-guided therapy is not necessary. I think it's, it's one of those things, right, you don't need it until you actually need it. But I think, you know, sometimes people interpret those studies as suggesting that a, an, an invasive hemodynamic evaluation is not needed or useful and I think that's wrong. Whether or not a PA catheter needs to be left in for days or a week to you know, titrate therapy, I think that is a point you could argue. But I never think it's wrong to be able to understand hemodynamics. And, and I think um, uh, it, it, with all of our non-invasive tools, it's, it's, it's easy to be misled. And, you know, I, I think about uh, an example is patients with left ventricular assist devices. And, you know, the unloading characteristics of our new devices are very different than the other devices. And you can't tell by echo if someone has adequate LV unloading. You might have an eight-centimeter ventricle, a very globular uh, septum, or a very globular LV and a septum that protrudes into the RV, yet their wedge pressure or their left atrial pressure could be one. And so, um, again, I I think it's never wrong to, to get a right heart catheterization. Because um, it's always going to be, uh, as long as you're doing it right, it's going to give you uh, important information. You know, we can estimate, of course, um, what uh, preload is. Now, I want to be careful uh, and remind everybody that pressure does not always equal volume. Um, but um, you certainly can uh, determine if pressure in the right side of the heart is elevated. You can determine if you have pulmonary hypertension, if that pulmonary hypertension uh, also has a precapillary component with an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. And then what's happening on the left side of the heart as well. Uh, and so, again, I think it's, it's always a useful information to have. And then we do have, you know, some hemodynamic measurements that can give us a sense of, of how the RV uh, is doing. Um, one of the ones that we use a lot is the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, or PAPI. This is the uh, pulmonary artery pulse pressure divided by the right atrial pressure. And uh, we think about what determines pulmonary artery uh, pulse pressure. Well, it's really two things. One is stroke volume, and the other is the compliance of the pulmonary artery. Uh, and so this can be a good um, uh, surrogate of right ventricular function. And in fact, one of my colleagues, Stephen Sue, um, uh, looked, was able to isolate individual uh, myocytes from uh, patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction RV dysfunction. And when he compared the different hemodynamic measurements to isolate the myocyte function, he found PAPI was really uh, the most closely associated with that individual myocyte function. And so PAPI can be, be very helpful. Um, 
I, I do want to point out because the denominator of, of PAPI is right atrial pressure, there is a point where it may be less useful. For example, if your right atrial pressure is two versus four, that ventricle probably is about the same in terms of, uh, of their filling pressures, yet um, this could uh, lead to very different PAPI um, uh, calculations. But if your right atrial pressure is elevated, I think PAPI uh, is a good one uh, that can help you know, determine how sick the right ventricle is. Um, you can also look at more simple things, just stroke volume, stroke volume index. We know both of those are very prognostic in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, the, the ratio of right atrial pressure to wedge pressure um, you know, may also be useful. So again, I think it all, it's, it's always uh, helpful to have a hemodynamic assessment. It doesn't mean that a catheter has to be left in place for a week to get infected, but, but I think you, you'll, it'll give the uh, physician taking care of the patients more information. Excellent. And one more question I had uh, before we, we move on to a different area is what are some um, signs that help differentiate between truly acute right ventricular failure versus acute on chronic? It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think it goes back to the history and, uh, you know, uh, what was the time course? Um, was this something that, you know, developed all of a sudden, or was it, you know, something that was a little bit more progressive? And that can be some, somewhat difficult to tease out, and particularly in young, young patients. Um, you know, I think that when you look at the echocardiogram, uh, if you see signs uh, of, you know, left heart failure, for example, um, valvular abnormalities, this would suggest, you know, some chronicity to the, to the right-sided uh, failure usually. Uh, but it's somewhat, it can be difficult to determine. I think the, the main thing goes back to your history to, you know, to determine timing there. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about causes of right ventricular failure in the setting of the ICU. And uh, I really um, think that a great framework to talk about this is through preload, afterload, and contractility. Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, we, we can start by talking about disorders of excessive preload. And then again, I kind of always break this down into acute uh, versus chronic. And so excessive preload acutely, the one that we think about, although it's not very common, would be tricuspid regurgitation. Um, that could occur if you have endocarditis and a, you know, a valvular involvement there, or if you had some damage to the tricuspid valve, you know, during a uh, intervention. Um, usually that's that is tolerated well, as long as you have normal right ventricular function and you have a normal left ventricular function. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, again, normally that's gonna be tolerated well. Um, when you have a, uh, another condition and you develop worsening TR, that's, um, that's a you know, separate issue. When we think about more chronic uh, RV preload abnormalities, you know, again, we think about uh, worsening tricuspid insufficiency. We think about shunts, uh, intracardiac left to right shunts or extracardiac shunts. Extracardiac shunts, for example, being AV fistulas, right? So if we think back many decades ago, these AV fistulas for dialysis patients were put in the forearm. Uh, and uh, that was uh, problematic a bit for our, our renal colleagues because um, they tended to close more often. They were more difficult to dialyze patients with. And so they moved them up to the upper extremities and it works great for dialysis. Unfortunately, uh, these fistulas can grow and uh, we've seen um, uh, some of these 
grow to, to an excessive extent where there is leaders and leaders of flow going through these fistulas. And there's been elegant work from Barry Borlaug and Yogesh Reddy that have shown us that over time, um, the right heart dilates and it becomes dysfunctional in these patients with very large fistulas. And so one of my favorite quotes or one of the, the things I always tell um, my, my colleagues and fellows is that I've never met, met, met a fistula. I didn't want to revise or close. Now, I do realize that they're a necessary evil um, for patients who have end-stage renal disease, but they do have a decrement. They, they can lead to, to problems with the right ventricle, particularly if, it's, if they're high flow. Uh, and if they have underlying cardiac dysfunction, you know, I think that's going to be, uh, it's going to be exacerbated. Uh, so that's something that, that I'm always kind of looking out for there. Not to mention that, um, as, as we talked earlier, a lot of now recognized risk factors for RV dysfunction, obesity, insulin resistance are probably going to be more prevalent in some of these populations with fistulas. You bet. Absolutely. What about... So then, go, uh, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, so then, you know, if we think about um, excessive afterload, again, breaking it down to acute and chronic. So acute, you know, the classic example, of course, is the, the, pulmonary, the pulmonary embolism. Um, uh, patients don't tolerate uh, these big increases in afterload acutely because of the thin-walled nature of the RV that's used to ejecting into a low afterload uh, circuit. And so that um, uh, obviously is, is not tolerated well. Chronic increases in afterload, we really think about the development of pulmonary hypertension. And when we, uh, we think about pulmonary hypertension, uh, we really have five categories, right? We have group one pulmonary, pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is either idiopathic or connective tissue disease related or a couple of other causes. We have group two, or, or pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease, which is by far the most common cause of pulmonary hypertension in the world. We have group three, which is uh, pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease or hypoxia. We have uh, group four, which is pulmonary arterial, uh, or which is pulmonary hypertension due to our arterial obstructions. The most common there being um, uh, chronic thermal block disease, and then we have group five, which is multifactorial uh, conditions like sarcoid, for example. And so those are going to be your more chronic um, disorders of um, excessive afterload. And then, you know, moving on to contractility, acutely, uh, the big one is myocardial infarction. Uh, and so you can uh, uh, either have a, um, uh, you can have an isolated right ventricular function, uh, infarction or a more global uh, involvement of, of LV and RV um, uh, myocardium uh, with, with a myocardial infarction. These patients um, are, are typically very, very sick. They can be bradycardic. Uh, they can go into complete heart block, um, and they can be very difficult to manage, often requiring additional support. And then more chronic um, uh, disorders of contractility, you know, if we think about uh, left heart failure, for example, the same uh, entities that impact the left heart can also impact the right heart. So, for example, uh, cardiac sarcoid or amyloid, all of these things can impact uh, uh, myocardial function uh, in, the, in the right heart. Um, the other one that we think about um, is um, uh, after cardiac surgery. Um, patients can come, uh, have difficulty winning from bypass uh, after a left ventricular assist device. Uh, these individuals uh, lose a lot of their RV function for various reasons, uh, and they can be uh, indeed very sick uh, uh, and, and lose that function. Uh, so those are, you know, the kind of the, the, the 
big categories that I think about when it comes to um, uh, the, the causes of, of, of ventricular failure. And then uh, with that framework, then I move into how we best treat those individuals. Absolutely. And uh, before we jump into treatment, just a, a comment. I am obviously acute contractility issues, post-cardiac surgery is a, a growing challenge, I think, in many ICUs as we continue to expand indications and procedures and we're taking care of sicker and sicker patients, like you said, even the increased use of assist devices in the left ventricle has now created new new paradigms, right, or new problems on, on, the, on the right. So clearly something that a lot of our intensivists uh, probably interact with in their daily day. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about causes, just because it's not something that I have seen or very familiar with, but it caught my eye just out of interest, was uh, a- ARVC or arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Is that something that we're seeing more now? You know, I think we are increasingly recognizing it. Um, it's, it's actually not specific to the RV anymore. Um, you know, a lot of people now just call it AVC, arrhythmogenic rhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy uh, because biventricular uh, uh, involvement certainly is common, but uh, it is certainly becoming more uh, recognized as an important cause of heart failure and certainly uh, sudden cardiac death and ventricular arrhythmias. But when I think about somebody who has isolated RV failure, particularly in the absence of pressure overload, right, that, that d- differential is, is somewhat narrow. And so ARVC is certainly one of them. There's the 2010 revised tra- task force criteria that provides a framework for diagnosis. There are uh, ARVC uh, centers. Uh, one of my former uh, centers in Johns Hopkins is, is one of the leaders uh, in this regard. Um, you know, you think about, um, I still remember one of my favorite patients that got a transplant for isolated RV uh, failure, and he had cardiac sarcoid that was really isolated to the right ventricle. Um, myocarditis can be isolated to the right ventricle, although it's more common to have biventricular involvement. But those are the, the, the three things that I think about uh, when I see kind of isolated right ventricular failure, um, uh, yet, yet no uh, pulmonary hypertension or, or pressure overload. Perfect. Thanks. Can we uh, now talk about treatment? And I guess you, um, we would take probably a very similar approach, right? You have to kind of break it up into obviously different clinical conditions, but what are the things that you can do for preload, afterload, and um, contractility? Sure. Well, uh, preload. And, you know, I think um, we go back a couple decades when uh, people had RV failure, the answer was, well, they're preload dependent. We need to give them volume. And if you remember nothing else from the podcast today, please remember that that is almost always not true. Um, There are rare instances, for example, in an acute uh, RV infarct, if you have a relatively preload, a low preload state uh, due to kind of distributive shock, then uh, in those situations, um, small uh, fluid challenges might be very reasonable. Um, but in almost every other situation, you know, either acute or chronic, uh, volume loading is, is almost never the answer and will make patients worse. There was a study that um, was out recently that I really liked in acute PE uh, where they actually um, randomized patients to receive um, a single dose of furosemide uh, versus placebo in those who had an intermediate risk pulmonary embolism. Uh, and those who actually got Lasix were more likely to meet the client endpoint. Uh, and so uh, 
which was a positive endpoint. And, and so, you know, very few situations would volume loading be the right answer. In fact, many times it may be harmful because we know as the RV gets volume overloaded, it becomes more dysfunctional. The septum flattens. We know that the septum is uh, responsible for the lion's share of, of right ventricular function. Um, we can develop pericardial restraint, which further reduces LV preload. Uh, and so most of the time, particularly and, and certainly in chronic RV failure, the answer is actually volume removal to optimize preload. And we do that through diuretics. Um, some situations um, may call for ultrafiltration or dialysis. There's even some novel therapies now that are looking at ways to uh, reduce uh, LV preload through devices or, for example, spl splinting nerve denervation. Uh, so maybe that's something that's coming down the pike. But um, normalization of preload um, is something that's really key uh, to managing patients with right ventricular failure. And I think it's worth uh, reemphasizing, as, as you mentioned, there's one thing people should take home today is the, this old dogma of preload uh, augmentation to, to help these patients is really not based on, on evidence and probably more harmful. We want to optimize preload, but like you said, in most clinical circumstances, that's probably preload reduction and removal of fluid. Right, and you know, you hear all the time, well, the patient's hypotensive. How could I, how could I possibly give them Lasix or diurese them? And of course, we, we have to, right? We've got to support their blood pressure with other means, uh, but but certainly uh, giving fluid is not the answer, and it's just going to start this RV death cycle that is occurring if you give them fluid. Um, so um, uh, do everything you can not to not to to uh, or to, to forget that age old adage of, of preload dependence of the RV. Perfect. Let's talk about contractility. Sure. So, you know, as we think about optimizing uh, contractility, I think of a, a few things. Uh, so one, um, and again, I'm going to take you back to preload, uh, is, is as we normalize preload, the RV is actually going to contract better, right? Because the septal function will be better. So first and foremost, again, to augment contractility, we've got to optimize uh, preload. Uh, in situations... Uh, where you have ischemia, obviously large vessel ischemia from an acute infarct, we're going to we want to try to open that artery and 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 uh, reperfuse uh, the right ventricle. But but then um, you know the rest of, of uh, contractility augmentation is going to occur via two really two mechanisms. One is to adequately support the systemic blood pressure. So as we get hypotensive, a couple of different things occur. One is the LV actually becomes less contractile um, as you become hypotensive. And we know that the RV depends on the LV for a significant amount of its um, contractile function, somewhere between 30 to 50%, and probably even more in pathologic states. And so as that LV becomes less contractile, we know the RV is also gonna contract less. As the patient becomes hypotensive, there's also gonna be more um, uh, decreased blood flow down the right coronary artery, and the RV is going to be, excuse me, is going to become more ischemic as well, and that's going to further decrease contractility. So, we want to support the systemic blood pressure, and then of course we can use direct inotropic medications like dobutamine, uh, like epinephrine, uh, perhaps milornone. Although we have to be careful with milornone because of the systemic vasodilatation. Um, I, I, I use milornone a lot in patients with left heart failure. But certainly in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, you're probably just going to get a lot of systemic vasodilatation, and that may 
worsen RV function. So uh, we can use those medications at least temporarily uh, to support the right heart, to optimize preload, to optimize afterload, like we're going to talk about in a minute, um, and, and, and support you through that acute state. Uh, but that's really you know, how we're going to uh, think about automating contractility. Perfect. And I guess last but not least would be afterload reduction, which is going to be something that we're going to be thinking, I, I think, in a lot of our patients in the ICU. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, so again, going back to the, the construct of acute versus chronic and patients with acute pulmonary embolism, right, we have to make a decision. Is anticoagulation going to be enough? Do we need some type of uh, either catheter-directed or systemic thrombolysis? And, you know, that's uh, still a, a topic that uh, has a lot of debate. Uh, but and certainly in, in critically ill patients with significant pressure overload, it's something that needs to be carefully considered. Uh, and then, you know, in more chronic uh, afterload states, um, for example, and the easy one is easier one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, uh, we are going to want to try to reduce afterload, right? And we have a number of different uh, medications that can do that, uh, both oral and IV. And that's really going to be uh, in collaboration with your, your pH colleagues to how best to do that. In the ICU, many times that's going to be an IV prostacycline in our critically ill patients. There is also uh, sometimes a, an indication for inhaled uh, therapies uh, like inhaled nitric oxide, particularly in the short term, or um, uh, which, which may uh, help uh, reduce RV afterload. In patients with left heart failure, it's, it's a little bit less uh, simple. Um, many of our drugs that we use to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension have not shown to be helpful in pH of the left heart disease. And in fact, there's some suggestion that they can be harmful. Um, so in those individuals, we're going to try to uh, reduce RV ap afterload by optimizing LV function, optimizing LV preload, and eventually work on getting these patients on the guideline-directed medical therapy uh, with our, our four drug pillars. Um, but they, you know, they're they a little bit more difficult to afterload reduce uh, outside of optimizing LV preload. Perfect. The, the, the other question I had, uh, Ryan, in terms of uh, the use of inhaled um, basal dieners like nitric oxide uh, in the acute setting, uh, any, any thoughts on that? Um, I, 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 I think it's still an area of a lot of mismanagement in the ICU. And obviously, um, I'm talking about a mixed bag here. Sometimes it's utilized for pulmonary hypertension issues, other times just for hypoxemia. But any comments from your perspective? Yeah, you know, the, the data with nitric oxide is, is mixed at best. If, uh, but, if, you know, the argument, of course, is, well, you, you can't really study the patients who need it. So that's a bit of a challenge. Um, I, I think the thing that I always go back to is, well, what, what is the physiology? Uh, you know, if somebody has an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance um, uh, and they're hypoxic, I think it's, I think it's reasonable if the RV is struggling. The nice thing about it is it's, you can turn it on acutely and turn it off acutely and it goes away. So it's, you know, each patient can kind of be their own. Um, uh, you, you can look at the response in the, in the individual patients, but I do agree with you. I think it can be misused. I think it can be overused. And if somebody doesn't have, you know, elevated RV afterload, it probably isn't going to do very much. The other area I wanted to ask uh, about, Ryan, is um... – in terms of afterload in the context of PE, we're seeing a rapid uh, increase in the utilization of 
catheter-directed therapies for acute pulmonary embolism with RV dysfunction. Uh, and obviously, there's really no good mortality data that I have seen, but a lot of the arguments are hemodynamic and afterload reduction arguments, um, whether that be catheter-directed TPA or catheter-directed thrombectomy. Uh, any comments on this? Yeah, you know, um, and this is not my area of expertise, uh, but physiologically, right, you would think that it would make sense. Uh, whether that translates into real improvements in clinical outcomes, I think, is um, is less clear. And, you know, all of these have some complication rates associated with them as well. So I think, thankfully, there are a number of, of clinical trials that should be coming out that will help give us that answer and define that population better. Um, you know, I think one of the major advances, though, when it comes to dealing with the QPEs is, is the development of the PERT team, which many hospitals have, including ours. And I think, you know, they're having a multidisciplinary approach from critical care doctors, cardiologists, interventional radiologists, pulmonologists, uh, anesthesia critical care, um, uh, just like a cardiogenic shock uh, um, team, uh, can really improve patient outcomes. So um, whether, you know, those devices need to be used more or less, I think, that remains to be seen, but I think, you know, what we have learned is a multidisciplinary approach when it comes to treating these sick patients and determining um, how best to care for them uh, is a clear winner. Perfect. The last question I have regarding treatment as we wrap up is, um, any comments on mechanical support? Sure. Um, you know, thankfully we are having, we do have more um, mechanical support options. Um than we used to, um, you know, for, for the right heart. Um, there's a couple of temporary MCS devices um, that are axial flow devices that um, are available now, although usually um, these are used in patients with concomitant left heart failure uh, or in, in um, postcardotomy shock. Um, these devices, again, are not without complications, so they shouldn't be used uh, unless they're truly indicated, but, but they certainly can restore um, uh, blood flow, uh, improve LV filling, and and provide RV support. You know, I think that um, what we still really don't have a good sense of is um, uh, what to do if these devices can safely be used in pulmonary arterial hypertension. One nice thing about them is you can adjust the flow, right? So I think traditionally when you've thought about support devices for the RV and pulmonary arterial hypertension, we worry about uh, pulmonary hemorrhage, uh, and that's still a worry, but, you know, if you have a device that could give you a liter, liter and a half of flow, maybe that's enough in the acute setting to allow someone to get more compensated to, to better treat uh, the cause of their RV dysfunction. Um, ECMO uh, certainly is um, a, a um, mechanical support platform that can be used uh, to bridge patients if, um, if there is a destination. So I think whenever we're going to use these devices, whether it's a temporary MCS device or ECMO, you know, we need to make sure that we um, have a destination. And maybe that's just a, you know, a, a bridging to a decision, uh, but we, you know, we want to make sure what, what is the long-term outcome here? Are we going to try to recover the patient? Are we going to move on to a lung, heart, or heart-lung transplant? You know, we always have to have these in mind when we use these, you know, very expensive therapies. And it, it, it come, becomes very difficult if we don't have a destination. And the patient, then we have to have the conversation uh, with the patient and the family. You know, now what do you want us to do? We're going to have to you know, stop using the device, and, and that can be very difficult. So I think it's again, speaks to the importance of the multi multidisciplinary team 
that can help make those decisions when these devices uh, may be used. But again, the good news is we do have some some potential devices now that, that may help with these uh, with these complicated issues. Absolutely, and I think that um, clearly uh, a lot that we've learned over the last, I would say, couple decades, and a lot still ahead that we don't know. But uh, definitely, I think a very relevant clinical topic. And uh, thanks again for for sharing your expertise. I, obviously, this is something that you live every day and you see it from every angle. But uh, I, I do believe it's something our critical care audience needs to be more aware of. And uh, with that, uh, we usually like to close the podcast, Ryan, with a couple of questions unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? You bet. So the first question relates to books. Are there any books uh, or book that has influenced you significantly or that you have gifted often to others? Well, uh, you know, I, I, would, I guess I would start by saying uh, a book called The Right Ventricle in Health and Disease. That's one that I typically like, like to gift to my, mentor, uh, my mentees and, and colleagues. I've been fortunate enough to participate in the writing of several of those editions. And, you know, it really goes back to a lot of the physiology, even more uh, sophisticated physiology than we talked about in, in ventricular assessment. And I just find we can learn so much by, by the history of medicine and understanding, understanding physiology. Um, you know, kind of uh, maybe outside my uh, expertise, I, I recently read uh, The Code Breaker, uh, which was uh, the story of Jennifer Aduna, who uh, helped develop CRISPR case 9 and gene editing. And I found that to be a, a really nice read. And uh, and her journey as a, as a woman in, sci- in science, and um, uh, I really enjoyed that, uh, that book. Excellent. And we'll definitely link both of these in the show notes. The second question relates to something you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe, or at least they don't act as if they believe it. Um, yeah, that's a good, good question. Uh, you know, the one that immediately comes to mind is um, that medicine is the easy part. Uh, one of my former mentors, mentors uh, Charlie Weiner, um, used to say that all the time, and I found that to be more and more true. Uh, it's more, uh, the, the difficult part can be uh, uh, managing um, personalities, managing patients, managing uh, patients' families, um, uh, managing your, your colleagues, getting everyone on the same page. Um, but you typically when, um, you know, the actual physiology, the actual um, knowing what to do is, is, is the easy part. It's, it's making that plan happen in a complex environment that can be more challenging. I agree. And, and I've heard a, a similar um thought in, in the terms of managing, right? Because management is easy. It's the people part that's hard. But I think at the end of the day, that's exactly what's happening at the bedside. That's exactly right. And the last... Well, it's, uh, important, it's important to have a great team, right? And for sure. I agree. And, and the last question relates to what would you want every listener, uh, all our critical care clinicians listening to us to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or just a thought. Don't forget the RV. You know, hopefully um, it's it's clear now that the RV is a is critically important in, in almost every disease. And so we need better ways to to assess it. We need better ways to um, identify uh, dysfunction uh, and then certainly uh, better ways to treat it. So don't forget the RV and, and the RV is rarely preload dependent. So uh, don't give fluid. I love that. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for giving us your time. I hope to 
have you back on the podcast to talk about more about the RV or maybe some other topics related to heart failure. Very good, Sergio. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.